Hello, this is PJ Ewing. You are listening to Lester the Nightfly, and we are so lucky today. We have Jonathan Ammons here with us, and he is a composer. He's a radio host. He's an expert in lots of things, Jonathan, and I'm so glad you're here on Lester the Nightfly, my friend. Well, thank you for having me. Jack of all trades, master of none here, I would say. But you uh, know. <laughs> Not from what I'm hearing. I, I have your catalog, my friend, and I am, I've been diving in, and you are a master of beauty. Beautiful music is what you are, and it's it's going to be fun to talk through it. It's oh, really, I, I really great. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to. Yeah, oh, you're most welcome. We have something in common, Jonathan and I. We both are uh, have our radio show at WPVM-FM in Asheville, 103.7. So those that are listening in Asheville, you're hearing two familiar voices. Jonathan's show is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, and of course, this is Lester the Nightfly. Jonathan, for a second, do you want to just talk about Dirty Spoon? It's it's a glorious, one of my favorite things on the air, but but maybe give us a second on that. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dirty Spoon started as um, an extension of uh, interviews that I would do for journalistic outlets in the area. And I'm primarily a food writer is my day job. And I would interview people and the paper would cut interviews short or trim stuff out of it that I thought needed to be in there. So I started Dirty Spoon as just like the kind of tabloid that would have the extended interviews, the full length things. And uh, I was dyslexic and a friend of mine, Catherine Campbell, came along and asked if she could help edit my stuff because it was barely legible. And uh, I asked her if she wanted to help me turn it into a full literary journal. And we primarily focus on memoir-based stories from people in the service industry. So everyone that contributes has worked in some format of the service industry at some point. And uh, we usually have writers from all over the country that submit stories and then voice actors that read them. And then we get people that work in the industry to illustrate those pieces. So everything's hand illustrated instead of, you know, people taking pictures of their lunch or whatever. And then we do a radio show around it with that mixes in the latest indie rock releases from every week. And we do it once a month. And I've listened to your show for a year and a half or so since I had my first moment on WPVM. 
and I am in awe. And every time I hear it, I put it up there with the great radio shows. Really. <laughs> I don't know about that. It is just a show about food after all. I know, but you have the, the, the wonderful readers. You have really well-written pieces. You have really great, obviously, musical taste, and you're bringing such interesting music. It is an hour that is just a, a, a true joy. Uh, there are just a few other shows that I would put in the category of what you do. And then when I look at the great podcasts, Death, Sex, and Money, and you go down the list of the NPR stuff, you're, you're, the quality is right in there. I, I'm just so impressed each time, truly. Well, truly. thank you. Yeah, we, we try. We try to run a tight ship, but you know, it's, it's kind of chaotic and random because we're paying out of pocket to do it. Right. Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. And it's dirty-spoon.com? Correct. Dirty-spoon.com. When does it air on PVM? Uh, it airs the first Saturday of every month at 11 a.m. Well, that's Dirty Spoon, but we're not here to do that. Jonathan is a musician, and he's a composer, and he has a lot of work under his belt and new work that we're going to talk about a little bit today. Uh, there are some new records, plural. One that we're going to feature is American Splendor. And then more recently, you have an, so there's another record after American Splendor, correct? Yes, we just I just put out um, Any Way You Turn, which is an instrumental record, and it came out in... Um, I want to say March 3rd, and uh, so it just dropped. Just now. That's interesting. We're actually not going to spend a lot of time on the brand new thing that just dropped. Yeah, we'd had this interview planned for a while, so I think we'd, we'd been planning on talking about the last record because the new one wasn't <laughs> out yet, but when we started planning this... <laughs> I'm twisting Jonathan's arm, and we're going to try to do an ambient music show because I just felt, really fell in love with his most recent work. Um, but anyways, we're going to talk about Jonathan's playlist. He's carefully crafted for us, and we're going to go song by song, and he's got just the most interesting music that we're going to going to learn about. We're going to begin with your work, Jonathan. So let's get into the music. Red Leaf, the record, American Splendor from January 2021. You pace the hallway until you reach the front door, but you know there won't be anyone there. Back to the bedroom and wander to the back door till you find you're at the foot of the stairs. You miss your father. Your mother, you miss the people you know, but you've got roommates, you've got the dogs, you've got nowhere to go. See 
record was kind of put together during lockdown and during the pandemic i kind of wrote that like during the strictest part of lockdown where everyone you know we weren't even going over to your neighbor's house kind of thing so the violin player on this record olivia springer was kind of like my little sister growing up i actually introduced her as my little sister when we go out in public because we grew up across the street from each other i still spend half of my christmas with with their family you know, it was these three sisters that lived across the street and they all played music. And the first thing I ever recorded was actually their family band. We grew up making music together and she plays on a lot of other artists' stuff. She played with Tall Tall Trees and a couple other bands. I had th- these tracks and I just sent her one and I was like, would you want to play violin on this? And she came in and, and played and it, it sounded great. And I was like, oh, we've got we've to do more of this. I would have the all the instrumentation done and then just start layering into her violins and build a whole string section around it. And then she would sing back up on it. And it just kind of turned into these really organic, nice sounding pieces, even though they're largely electronically composed. This was Red Leaf. What are tracks then that you looked at or inspired you or were influential in, in the composition? So I think like one of what's funny is like, this was one of those records where I didn't, have a lot of influences. I feel like some of my back catalog, and especially if you look up my old band, Electric Ghost, um, they were. Ba- I was basically just trying to... I went to a music school where they gave me some very bad advice of not trying to jump around in genres and just doing what you're good at and just sticking to your guns. And I thought with my voice, all I was really going to be able to do was sing like Americana kind of rock and roll stuff because I have kind of a tea kettle voice. And, uh, so I played basically Wilco knockoffs for a really long time and, uh, everything just sounded like kind of straight up Americana. And I got really bored with that. And I was like, what if I'd make something that just sounds completely unique? And I had this nylon string guitar and I would just start plucking away on it. And I'd be like, oh, that's a pretty good riff. And then after I started recording things, I thought, well, this sounds kind of like an old Bill Callahan song. And uh, he, he's the artist also known as Smog. He's just one of my favorite songwriters. And he's a baritone. I'm certainly not. My range goes up into alto range. He uh, just writes on these like classical guitar pieces, basically, that he then layers on instruments on top of. And they just are these beautiful songs that are kind of loop-based acoustic songs. And I really like his, his method of writing. And he had an album called Sometimes I Wish We Were an Eagle, that was really influential for me when I was in college. And uh, his song, All Thoughts Are Prey to Some Beast, I think you'll hear a lot of similarities in, in some of the sounds that I got out of it. And I didn't even realize it until like after I'd written these songs that I was like, oh, this has some Bill Callahan influence to it, I guess. 
Ah, beautiful. Let's listen to it right now. I want everyone in on this and then we'll talk about it. This is All Thoughts Are Prey to Some Beast by Bill Callahan. It's 2009 from the album, Sometimes I Wish We Were an Eagle. The leafless tree looked like a brain. The birds within were all the thoughts and desires within me. around from branch to branch or snug in their nests listening in an eagle came over the horizon and shook the branches with its sight the softer thoughts starlings finches and rams after thoughts, they all took flight. The eagle looked clear through the brain tree. Empty he thought, save for me. Maybe I'll make this one my home. Consolidate the nests of the tiny. Raise a family of might like me Then something struck him, wings of bone The sweet desires and soft thoughts were all gone The eagle shrieked, I'm alone
desire and soft thoughts return to me. looked up Mr. Callahan. I did not know him. Born in 66, a little younger than me, barely. He began working, it says, in the lo-fi genre, meaning he not overly produced. Did he stick with that or did he become, did he use all the tools over time? His stuff's a little more produced now, as you can hear on that track. You know, that's definitely more more hi-fi recording. But I think he still has, I think once you're in that school of things and learning to work with tape and with uh with static as a as a sound effect (laughs) you just kind of keep it and you you kind of lean on organic sounds which is what i think works really well about his his composition and his music this is a really interesting song my notes are really about the lyrics i was trying to you know figure it out what what is really going on here and i don't know if i cracked the code really I, i wrote in quotes the influence of brutes, and I don't believe that's a lyric in there, but he keeps referring to sweet desires and soft thoughts, and then all thoughts are prey to some beast. I've always taken this song as being about the way your mind becomes all-consuming when you're losing somebody, and I think it's a song about a breakup and him just being absorbed by the loss of it and it all the tenderness of that thought of that person gone consumed by this like vicious predatory thing that's just worried about its own survival i think that makes a lot of sense the the horns in there the strings the drums so momentous and uh important and there was sadness and there's something i wrote tells the story of an eagle who ends up alone there's loss in there yeah. it's really really beautiful yeah the whole record's this way it's a fantastic album he's he's just a really good he writes very transcendentally it's a very it's a very great writing style never heard of bill callahan thanks for that that's really he used to go by the name smog and he was married to cat power for a long time oh of course i so know that he's name. part of that kind of atlanta scene of musicians yeah. so. Were there any others that influenced this particular song of yours, or is that the one that that we have? 
Velvet Underground. Uh, they're they're kind of just influential to me in, in just about everything. Um, okay. I really love their uh, Lou Reed's writing style. I love I love uh, John Cale's writing as well, and the way they arrange things. And it's just simple rock and roll, like maybe three chords, sometimes just one chord, you know. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. it's just really good good stuff. And I like the way he writes a song and approaches it from a different angle. So let's listen to one. It's from 1967. Uh, the album is called The Velvet Underground and Nico. I'll be your mirror. Let's take a listen, then we'll talk about it. I be your mirror, reflect what you are, in case you don't know. I be the wind, the rain and the sunset, the light on your door, to show that you're home. When you think the night has seen your mind, that inside you're twisted and unkind. Let me stand to show that you are blind. Please put down your hands, cause I see you. darkness so you won't be afraid when you think the night is in your mind that inside you twisted and unkind let me stand to show that you are blind please put down your hands cause I see you wanted to understand the Velvet Underground all my life. And this is my first dip into that. And what I did then was, well, first of all, who is this Nico person? Cards on the table. That's not much of a voice. It's a bizarre, <laughs> off-key, great presence. It's compelling. It's 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 like a magnet. I mean, you know, it, 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 it like who the way she pronounces, it's like she's speaking English for the first time. It's it's fascinating. And she was a very big deal. But I, I had never really heard her sing until this, believe it or not, I know. But what it led me to was this. And I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know that she was in one of Fellini's biggest movies, La Dolce Vita. Are oh, you yeah. aware of that? Oh yeah, you most are. definitely. Yeah. Do you know this movie then? Yes, I do, yeah. Because <laughs> I went back and found the scene where she and Marcello Mastriani meet. Because, you know, and it was, uh, she's a brief little moment, a couple, and she's she's Nico, I believe. She's playing herself. Yeah, just the, uh, the astoundingly Amazonian Nico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to talk for a second about La Dolce Vita because it is one of my favorite experiences. I haven't seen it in many, many years. This is inspiring me to go back and, and see that, that film. Yeah, I don't think I've watched it since college, but yeah. Have you seen much Fellini? Have you seen much Marcello Mastriani? I, I do before? love Fellini a, a lot. Like, um, eight and a half, you know, great, 
classic. I love old film like that and old, especially the experimental stuff where it just starts to get weird where you're like, oh, yeah, here's somebody yeah. really trying to do something different with this medium. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's a definition of Fellini. I mean, when you're sitting there and uh, there's a sad character sitting on the stoop in some Italian town and a horse on just walks through the scene, just inexplicably yeah oh yeah <laughs> Just like what what is going on i think and i think that's to me like that's kind of the fun of like even the music of that era and and seeing like velvet underground and that kind of thing is it was somebody trying to do something new with the medium and yeah. i think a lot of the things that they do that was really groundbreaking is just kind of commonplace now even having someone like nico on who isn't necessarily a singer but just commands the stage and commands a performance and yes you know yes. nico's solo records are killer too that's where jackson brown got his start was writing uh, for her solo record that's where he wrote these days for her and oh, he was 17 16 17 when he wrote that song mm -hmm. and it's just one of those songs that's a career maker you know and uh and that was another thing they did was instead of having it be acoustic guitar and strings on that song they switched it to electric guitar and it was just a completely different sound and it just made it sound way more modern for its day and, and really unique. I didn't know the name John Cale until a year ago. This is how limited my education in this area is. And John Cale being part of the Velvet Underground and then moving on to his own solo career. I brought to you in an email back and forth the song Paris 1919, Paris 1919, yeah. as, a, as a song that has knocked me sideways to the point of wanting to do a whole a whole show on John Cale because I don't know enough and I just want to educate myself on him and his beautiful work from that record. In fact, some believe that record, Paris 1919, is a real work of art. Oh, it's amazing. It's a remarkable album. I think he's one of the few remaining musical geniuses in the world, um, him and Brian Eno mm. in particular. Um, are, are some of my favorites and i think like john kale's composition is this very minimalist very like philip glassian style approach to composition and i really like those minimalists that just kind of rely on simple melodies and memorable things and classical traditions too you know she makes me so unsure of myself Standing there but never ever talking sense Just a visitor you see So much wanting to be seen She'd open up the doors and vaguely carry us away It's the customary thing to say or do To a disappointed proud man in his grief And on Fridays she'd be there But on Mondays not at all just casually appearing from the clock across the hall. Here it goes, la 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 la. Here it goes, la 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 la. I'm a church and I come to claim you with my iron drum. La 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 la. Tears from old Japan 
caravans and lots of jam And maids of honor singing, crying, singing tediously You're a ghost, la-la-la, la-la-la-la-la Yes, you're a ghost, la-la-la-la-la-la-la I'm the bishop and I've come to claim you with my iron drum This is leading us toward where I, I do want us to go, and that is your instrumental music, your ambient, you know, minimalism yourself. You write minimalist music. Would you agree with that statement? Oh, I yeah, mean, that- definitely. I think all these songs are, are minimalist songs. In fact, like the next track we were going to play off of my record, First Frost, is about as minimalist as it gets, you know, mm-hmm. and but it still builds into this big epic thing, but it's all based off of just a few notes. Now, I have a definition in front of me, a form of art music or other compositional practice that employs limited or minimal musical materials. Prominent features of minimalist music include repetitive patterns, pulses, steady drones, constant harmony, and reiteration of musical phrases or smaller units. And then this is what really, there's more, but, and they talk about phase shifting and process music, but this is the phrase that I really loved. And that is calls attention to the activity of listening by focusing on the internal processes of the music. So calls attention to the act of listening. And I started to explore the idea of watching yourself or watching the watcher. Meaning I'm listening to music and I'm observing myself listening to music and you're focusing on the the structural processes of the music, the notes that are changing, the, the it's almost like a math equation, like the matrix that you're studying and looking and there's a difference and there's a, that a like this, it, they're, they're suddenly 
big sparks, little differences become big deals in minimalism because you, you're so repetitive. It's the old John Cage trick. Um, John Cage, uh, you know, experimental composer, actually lives here in Asheville where I am um, for a while and taught at the Black Mountain College. He, Yeah, Black Mountain College has a crazy history. Merce Cunningham, the father of modern dance, like a bunch of people were there. Yeah, John Cage did a piece that was... Um, I forget the name of it. It's just the amount of time the piece is supposed to be, but it's no, uh, yes, famously a certain number of minutes yeah, or seconds or whatever. Yeah, it's literally just the piano player walks out to the piano, raises the lid, puts his hands over the keys, and then stares at the sheet music for the amount of time on the clock. And the music is actually the audience's noise, and mm. the recordings of it. Any of the recordings are always done live, and it's the sound of the audience shuffling, people coughing, like everything happening in the background. Cause the whole point was like, you know, there's all these sounds happening around you all the time. Like you're, and the audience is participating in the piece essentially. Um, hmm. but I think a lot of that, like I have a fascination with that kind of stuff, but also with, um, you know, I, I mentioned Brian, Eno earlier, he's probably my biggest influence in music and he's kind of the father and inventor of ambient music, which is, you know, what a lot of my, my more instrumental stuff revolves around. And, you know, he goes back to Satie when he references ambient music, uh, the French composer, and shows Satie is, Eric Satie is the, the um, you know, Gymnopodies, his most famous piece. Mm-hmm. He's, Satie was obsessed with doing music that was just background music. And he would get upset when he would be doing a performance and people would stop and listen to the music. Because he was mm-hmm. like, no, you're supposed to be going on about your day. You're ruining the piece. Like, this is just supposed to be part of your day. It's supposed right. to be part of the background. And, you know, that was before films had scores and things. And before that idea was kind of commonplace for us. But now I think a lot of people think about that when they put headphones in and walk to the bus station. They they have their own soundtrack in their head of what their day is. And I think what... Eno did when he decided to start doing ambient music was he wanted to make music that was just wallpaper. He had gotten injured and he was confined to his bed and a friend came over and put on a record and turned it down so that they could have a conversation. And when he left, the record kept playing, but it was too quiet for him to hear. So the birds outside were just as loud as the music. And uh, he realized, he was like, oh, this could be a style of music. Instead of putting on all these songs that take you through this emotional roller coaster of up and down emotions. Why don't we just have music that is just a single emotion the whole way through and is, is not this emotional journey, but is just stable sounds that you can play in the background all day long. And it's not going to demand things of you. It's just going to be something pleasant for the background. That's a tea. And Eno took that concept and was running with it in his ambient. Yeah, work. Eno was the one who was confined to the bed and then started composing yeah. music of this way. He was in Roxy Music and all these other big yeah. bands. Yeah. And he's produced everybody from U2 to um, Coldplay to, uh, you know, any other pop bands you can imagine. Talking Heads mm-hmm. were one of his big things, Devo. But he, uh, you know, his own music is runs the gamut between rock and roll and, and this very abstract ambient instrumental stuff and it was was it music for airports was that the big record that we know about yeah music for airports is a huge one another green world was probably the way i discovered him i when i was in like middle school i was really into 
U2. And I remember a dude that worked in my brother's record store being like, you know, if you really want to get into good music, just pay attention to all the guys that are listed as producers on your favorite records. And so I just started buying albums of all the people that were listed as producer. And one of those was Brian Eno's Another Green World. And it was just transformative. It's every other track is an instrumental track. And then there are these really great, you know, pop songs, essentially. So wait a minute. Let's go. Let's go to you. You're 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 working in a record store for how many years? My were you brother doing was working in a record store, and I was just oh. going to help out. I'd go help him do inventory, and they'd give me free CDs. <laughs> so you did it for free. You're yeah. basically just free labor, and you you know they'd hook you up a little bit. Yeah, they'd give me like a you know fifty seventy five dollar gift certificate or something. Oh, I love this. How old were you? I was like high school, you know, middle school probably. I think like I mean, eighth grade. I think it was eighth grade. It, it, this sounds like you got, you got the, in quotes, the bug for music early in life. Mm-hmm. What was your first record? Do you remember? Oh, I grew up in like a conservative Christian family. It was like Newsboys or something like that, you know? Uh-huh. DC Talk or some kind of conservative Christian music. But uh, I remember- How like, the first record that you got to choose, like your own taste? Um, I mean, a lot of it was, they'd drop us off at like the Christian bookstore and we'd, you could go in and listen to CDs and buy stuff, but there was some weird music in there too, like Starflyer 59 or, or Pedro the Lion, uh, David Bazan's still one of my favorite songwriters. He, you know, did a whole record about his breakup with God and it's one of the most brutally honest, like really beautifully written albums. Huh. Um, huh. and then I think for me, like I started getting into, I've listened to like terrible top 40 pop music growing up but I got really into the production like when I was in high school there was a guy that led the church band and I sat down with like a hand drum and he was like you've got good rhythm you should sit in with the band and I was like sure and then I came in one day and he was playing this trance music like this electronic um, dance music and I was like what is this and he's like oh I made this and I was like how did you make this because that was just the most foreign thing to me I didn't understand making music on a computer was a thing and he opened up his laptop and showed me a program that he was programming on called Orion. And he gave me a demo copy of it. And I went home and I started learning how to work it. And I was like, oh, I think I could do this, but I'm not very good at a guitar or piano and I'm not very good at music theory, but I think I could learn to program beats. And so I started making electronic music and, um, you know, probably eight years later, I put out my first record, um, which was a all electronic instrumental kind of drum and bass or trip hop record. And that one was called awakening. And, uh, yeah, every, everything after that, I was like, Oh, I can make music now. And I thought of it as being an arranger, not a musician, you know, not an instrumentalist. Where did you go to school for, uh, for music though? I went to the contemporary music center in Martha's vineyard. And that was an extension of my studying music business at Montreat college in black mountain, North Carolina. Okay, so let's move on then. We're going to another song from American Splendor from 2021. It's called First Frost. Uh, Let's take a listen and then we'll talk about it. When they pull you from the river Your face was already Just some 
here with Jonathan Ammons. This is PJ Ewing. You're listening to Lester the Nightfly on some great radio station out there. I wrote down one word. It is the word suicide. Yeah. Um, most of this record is based... I'm a, primarily a journalist is my main job. And for a long time, I was my um, newspaper's food policy correspondent, which meant I dealt a lot with hunger issues. And so I was at food banks all the time. And um, so a lot of my work was around poverty and people struggling financially. And I did a lot of interviews. And so most of this record is, you know, based off of interviews that I did with people in the field for that work. And then at the same time, I was working on a podcast that never got finished that was called Post-Christian that was about people that left their faith and how they reconstructed their lives outside of the church and outside of the confines of a religion. And, uh, you know, about just exploring the different ways people approach life when they come out of that background. And one of the interviews that we did was with an old college friend of mine, and she had attempted suicide not that long ago. And then um, after that interview, she attempted again, like several months later. And uh, the she made a post about the first thing that she remembered seeing when she was being pulled out of the river was her husband running down to her. And her husband was an old roommate of mine, so we're, I'm pretty. I was pretty close to both of them, and. Uh, this was about, um, I tried picturing it from his perspective and I, you know, took liberties with it, of course, um, to kind of fictionalize it and not make it so close to home, but it's definitely about, you know, some dear friends of mine. I was walking uh, this morning in freezing cold New York city, listening to this song, uh, trying to get to the subway so I could warm up. And it was so sad. <laughs> I was so struck. Uh, you captured the, 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 once okay yes you tried suicide hopefully we're addressing those issues but a second attempt it felt so i felt so defeated in listening to the song realizing that after all the efforts after an attempt to to fix and repair and encourage and do whatever people need to do that it when it happens again you really feel all is lost um, and it was, uh, it was very, it was really, really, really touching. Um, another image that raced through my brain was a movie, and I don't think I can remember the name. It was a documentary about the Golden Gate Bridge and people's suicides off of that bridge. And it was a film that was very controversial at the time because they filmed people diving into the water and it's almost always um, fatal. Yeah. And there was a young man who did it and uh, survived and then did it again. And then there was another story of a person that was there, you know, months in and months out and wouldn't jump, couldn't jump, couldn't jump. And then the final scene of the film, this documentary was indeed him falling. And, um, and you go into the mechanics of this, this mindset and it's just dark and sad and awful and, and you captured it in this song and in some beautiful way. I was just really struck this morning by listening. Yeah, I think it's, you know, a, a healthy animal does not want to die. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't understand about people that are suicidal is like, it's not, 
It's not like it's something they can just fix. It's like telling yeah. someone to fix their cancer, you know? And mm. uh, I think that's part of what I really love about their story is um, just the, the love beyond the illness and seeing somebody through the illness and seeing them as more than their illness. Mm. And uh, I think that's kind of the whole, that's, you know, what I really admire about, about him or the narrator of the story is, is yeah. the determination and the, the commitment. I always write the music first and then make the lyrics. And I was, I realized I was like, I have to make this one really big. Were there songs that you have that complement this particular song, First Frost? On our list? Yeah, I would say that Bjork song, Pagan Poetry, she's always been a very big influence for me. I think her style of using strings really influenced this one. There's also a lot of Sigur Ross in this song, if you've ever listened to Sigur Ross, a great Icelandic band. I love Icelandic music. They really rely on strings in a very interesting way and orchestral music because a lot of their music schools were funded by um, classical music programs. So all these people grew up being classically trained and then they get government funding to make their own music and they make this very experimental music And as a result. Because I was blown away by both pieces that you're referring to. The most beautiful thing I think on your playlist was the cigarette. I, I, yeah, let's play that one. I, I, I love that song. It's a beautiful song. Starlfur, Starlfur, Starlfur. I think it's Starlfur. Starlfur, Star I S T A R A with an accent I. -F -U -R. What's funny is they actually sing in a made-up language, so that it will sound just oh. as foreign to people in Iceland as it will to people in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world. This is from 1999. This is Sigurós. Uh, this will blow your way. Let's take a listen, then we'll talk about it. Falta en 
Stadler. It evoked Radiohead to me for a second because of the production value. There was bigness. It was gorgeous. The strings. Radiohead lists them as a big influence for sure. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Is that right? That may, That's interesting. I didn't know that. The strings were incredible. I was in tears by the beauty of this well before I, I looked at the lyrics, the lyrics about um, an elf. In this case, I didn't um, know that. I've never looked at the lyrics yeah. to this. And it, well, it's it's the thing is, it's almost a lullaby. It's an imagination journey. These horns are beautiful. Um, the noise of the cosmos, kind of scary at the very end in my in my mind. It was such a big wow because of the the scope, the expanse of the sound was just gorgeous. The layering, I I, I really really love this piece, uh, and I just again. Sounds silly, but thank you for, for bringing this to my ears. Sigurdas was just a huge band for me. I remember hearing them. I think the first time I heard them was in the Vanilla Sky soundtrack, the Tom Cruise movie. I remember buying their album after buying that soundtrack and just being floored by it and just realizing that you could make popular music that was also symphonic 
and it not be like some Sarah Brightman cheese ball thing. <laughs> you know, like you could actually make music that was had popular sentiment, but also was very um, orchestral and grandiose in its composition. And I, I really love that style. It's it's similar to you know my my love of. Um, Velvet Underground and Nico stuff with all the strings. Um, I'm just a sucker for big strings sections. You know, I, I like that style of music. And uh, yeah, Sigurás has always been one of my favorite bands. And that brings us to the end of our first episode with Jonathan Ammons. Wow, what fun! I can't wait for you to hear next week's episode. We continue the story. We learn more about his music, and in fact, Jonathan brings us some other really interesting tracks. We dive into a little bit of Brian Eno some other surprising tracks. It's going to be a lot of fun. I will see you next week right here, same time, same place, on Lester the Nightfly. This has been a PJ DJ production.